Welcome to chapel this morning. Great to see you. I hope you had a great weekend. I have two good friends here to share with you. One is Ashley and one is Alondria, and they want to share a quick word of, of announcement with us, so I hope you'll pay close attention. Hello. On behalf of the Association of Black Students, we invite you to our Black Heritage Banquet. This event includes dinner, live performances, and an inspirational message from actress Tamara Mowry Housley. The banquet will be held Tuesday, February 11th at 7 p.m. on the fifth floor of Cashin. Tickets are $15 for students and are available now at the sub-ticket office. Please email abs at baylor.edu for more information. Thank you for your time, and we hope to see you there. Thank you, guys. One of my favorite things about chapel is that we're able to gather together and start our week, even here at 9.05, start our week by gathering and worshiping together. So it's only appropriate that we hear a little bit from the Word of God, and so will you please listen closely as we hear our Old Testament reading this morning. Hear these words from Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as royal, warriors rejoice when dividing the plumber. For as in the day of Median's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Now please stand for the gospel reading from Matthew 4. I will read the light print and you will respond with the bold. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he caught them. This is the gospel of our Lord. Please join me as we pray together. As I pray, please simply respond with, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Almighty God, as we turn aside from all else, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. As we declare our praise to you, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. As we acknowledge our need for you, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. As we are constantly reminded of the world's needs, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. As we express our faith here, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. As we hear all that you have to say in this place, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Hello. Hello. It's good to see all of you here in the 1010 Chapel. I'm, I'm uh, thankful to be able to introduce to you a dear, dear friend of mine. 
This is Milton Brasher Cunningham. I'm going to tell you a little bit about our story here in just a second, but uh, the last time he was on the chapel stage was in 1978 when he was dressed up in a singing outfit and, and left and went off and did life, and he's back here today. And you, wanna... you can tell I'm a dancer by looking at me, can't you? <laughs> so uh, I want to tell you a little bit about the journey, and, and bear in mind, you know, you'll hear... Uh, advisors over in the in career center say, you're probably going to have like 10 to 12 careers, right, if you're in this generation, different from your parents in that respect. But So I want to tell you Milton's uh, story by way of uh, the career moves. While he was at Baylor, he actually became a pastor out near Gatesville, and then he went to Southwestern Seminary, and after that became a hospital chaplain, and then he also became a, a youth minister and then he also became a church planner, and then he also became a songwriter, and then he also became a, a high school literature teacher, and then he also became a really, really, really fine chef, and then he also became a poet and published author. In fact, we have his book here today. We're going to be talking a little bit about it, Keeping the Feast. And uh, now I work at the Apple Store. And he works at the Apple yeah. Store now. So a lot like you, he's gonna, he has made some moves, but always... Uh, pursuing what his calling was in life, and we'll talk more about that. We met in, in 1976 in the fall, and the reason why it's important in some sense for our conversation today is that he was an upperclassman who, who reached out towards me, a junior, getting to know a freshman, and we became really good friends, and the kinds of friends, you'll make these friends in these years, you'll make a lot of friends, and some you won't see again after graduation except homecoming, but some of them will be your friends the rest of your life, and they're going to be the kind of friends that cause you to be somebody different than you are in a way, hmm. and that you aren't who you were because they, they now are part of your life. Augustine, a lot of philosophers wrote about friendship, deep friendship. Augustine, this is pretty bold. He says, these kinds of friends, these true friends, are two bodies sharing in the same soul. You know that's, that phrase, soulmate. You bump into somebody, and over time, you begin to realize there's a deep sharing. And it's something along the way you commit to. And it's something along the way you find yourself making sacrifices for. That's the kind of friendship Milton and I have had all these years. We have had thousands of conversations. And we got to talking about the fact that he was going to be in Texas. So why don't you come to chapel, and we'll have another conversation. Only this time we'll have it in front of all the, the chapel students. He has written a book uh, where faith and learning come together, faith and life come together in some really powerful ways, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second, Milton. I want you to, I want you to begin by uh, uh, getting in touch with that, that whole on-the-line business of how you became a chef, because you moved from being a preacher to a chef. That's an interesting move, and I want you to talk in a minute about how you became a chef, but you uh, got to Baylor... Uh, in, uh, in 74. Mm -hmm. not, he was a missionary kid first, by the way. Any MKs up here? He, he grew up in Africa. Talk a little bit about how you made your way from that life to, to a community like Baylor and what it meant to you, those kind of things. There are a lot of reasons Baylor is significant in my life, and not the least of which was it was the first time that I lived somewhere for four years in a row with the same people around me. From first through 12th grade, I went to 10 different schools in six different cities. Only twice did I ever go back to the school in the fall where I had finished in the spring. 
And so coming to Baylor, where I was going to be four years here, and it was, it, that was an astounding thing to me. I couldn't imagine that I was, I got to stay someplace. It was the first place I ever felt like I had roots, where I could walk past, past places and go, oh, I remember what happened there, or I hope they never find out what happened there, and, you know, <laughs> whatever it was. And to know people. We met, as Bert said, in the fall of 1976. In the fall of 1986, I called Bert and I said, you're the only friend in my life that I've had for 10 years that I knew where they were, all 10 years. And I was almost 30. And so the chance to be somewhere and think about that I was going to get to know people I would know for a lifetime was astounding to me. Uh, Baylor sort of launched you in a way, and, it, and, and you were, I mean, in, in some sense, you're the same person I met. I mean, mm -hmm. the same kind of calling in your life, but you've expressed it, and it's manifested in so, itself in so many different ways. And think with us first, before we get to the business about how you became a chef, a little bit about that, what it means to be you and be doing what you think you ought to be doing in the context of a life in a lot of different places. The, after the last chapel, one of your colleagues stopped and asked me, we got to talking about vocation, and, and um, I think it, it, there's a way in which it dif differs for each of, each of us. I'm Ginger, my wife, who's an amazing person, when she was 16 years old, stood up in First Baptist Church, Irondale, Alabama, and said, I think God's calling me into ministry in the middle of a church that to this day doesn't have female deacons. And to the church's credit, they had the wherewithal to say, well, we raised you to do what God wants you to do. Okay, so they ordained her. All she's ever, she's known since that day that what she wanted to do was pastor. Me, I, you know, what are you interested in? By the time we get through talking, I want to do what you do. I mean, <laughs> I, I just, I love the variety of it. I'm always looking for new experiences and tied in with that is I'm looking for new ways to connect with people. So I was, I leaned towards ministry because my father, my parents were missionaries. My father was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. It was the family business. And I think that's in a large part why I ended up going into the pastorate was I was taking up the family business. I don't mean by that that I didn't feel called, but it's the same reason I was a Baptist. I was born to a Baptist household. If my parents had been Methodist, I'd have, I'd have been Methodist. And as I went along the way and other things presented themselves, or there are things that happened, things that didn't work out, when I finished seminary, I was really going to, wanted to go overseas to do PhD work. My, one of my seminary professors took a real interest in me, and in the meantime, while I was waiting to see if that worked, I did a year of clinical pastoral education, which is being a hospital chaplain at Baylor Medical Center in Dallas. And then the professor that I was supposed to work with in Switzerland had a heart attack, and they lost my application, and I never got to do doctoral work. And I loved being a hospital chaplain, so I stayed there. So sometimes... Uh the, the thing that initially feels like a disappointment becomes the gift yeah. in some other ways. Yeah. And, and that in, is a part of how you became a, a cook. And mm -hmm. I want you to read that in particular, that one section about how you learned to be a chef. 
a little bit, or maybe maybe set it up first. Sure. I, I think this is really important to hear. I um, I was teaching high school in Boston, and then we moved south of Boston to a little town called Marshfield, Massachusetts, where my wife was pastoring. And um, in the fall, about two, uh, no, a week before the towers fell in 2001, the ground opened up and I fell into a deep depression. And I had never felt that way in my life. I, I had no idea what was happening to me. And uh, through that fall and most of the spring, I did well to, most of what I did was get out of bed and write really morose poetry and that was my, my accomplishment. And in the spring, I started trying to figure out what I could do for work because I needed to find a way to make some money and because I had learned to cook with my mom in the kitchen, the kitchen was a depression-free zone for me. So I started looking for a cooking job and that's how I got into the kitchen and was hired um, first by, in this little mom and pop place that was opening up and then on to another and another. And twice, twice in my life, in my cooking life, I um, left restaurants for reasons other than my choosing, shall I say. Uh, mostly because if any of you have ever worked in the restaurants, people that own, most people that own restaurants are crazy. And uh, it's a kind of a bizarre world. But anyway, so I had to go find a job. So I saw this restaurant in Plymouth, Massachusetts that looked really cool and I liked their menu. And so I just knocked on the door, went in one afternoon while they were getting ready and asked the chef if he had, if he was looking for anybody. And uh, he asked me as we were talking, he said, are you self-taught? And if you don't mind, let me read you my answer. Yes, I said, meaning that I had not gone to culinary school and I had just learned in the kitchen. Tim, the chef, had trained at the Culinary Institute of America, the CIA, and in, in cooking world, that's what the CIA means. He wasn't a spy. <laughs> he went on to talk about how most all the people in his kitchen were self-taught and how most of them had been with him for five or six years. And he talked about how he enjoyed teaching and training people, which was true. He ran the most efficient and consistent kitchen I ever worked in. And I learned a lot from him. That evening, though, when I got home, I started thinking about his question, and I wanted to call him back and answer differently. So I'll answer it now. I'm not self-taught. I apprenticed. Jose taught me how to make Brazilian sweet potato salad. Carlos taught me how to make soup. Kevin taught me how to flip eggs. Sunichi taught me how to make maki rolls. Eric taught me how to make a beurre blanc. Bill taught me how to know when a steak is done. Alfonso taught me how to cut fruit. Pedro taught me how to make mashed potatoes for 300 people. Robert taught me how to run a kitchen. Tim taught me how to make focaccia. Abel taught me how to make a rosemary cream sauce. And my mom taught me how to fry chicken. So in, the, in that world, the idea of apprenticing or being mentored into something is still valued. Uh, translate that, and in some sense, go back to when you were 19 here and you were mentored and apprenticed into life or into a journey. Talk, make, make some connections there. Okay. The, 
one of the things when you say that that's real that I've learned across the did you know that you can't copyright a recipe? Like if you publish a cookbook and it's full of recipes, I can take every recipe out of your cookbook and put it in my cookbook and you, there's, I'd not do anything wrong. Because the whole idea of a recipe is it's a shared experience. And you can't really put a copyright on a cup of flour. It's just what it is, you know. The contrast with that to me is working in the Apple store where everything is proprietary and it's only ours and no one tell anything about it to anybody. But in the kitchen, everything gets shared. And I love that sense. In fact, the best thing I can do would be, if I'm your sous chef, is open my restaurant and put your stuff on my menu and say, we're making bird stuff here. That's the way that I honor the relationship. And that sort of mentoring, when I was here at Baylor, my first semester, I had a Western Civ class. And my professor was a man named Wallace Daniel, who looked like he came from Central Casting. Right, he had on the corduroy coat with the patches on the sleeves and the shirt that had been ironed sometime and um, big, thick glasses and his hair that kind of went all over the place and, you know, like, like he'd been in the middle of a hurricane and thought, oh, wait, I have to teach. And then he came into class. And, and, he, and um, this probably sounds funny now, but in 1974, he carried a pipe in his pocket and he would be lecturing, and he'd reach out, and while he's talking, he'd play around with the pipe, and then he'd pull out a lighter. This is in the basement of Tidwell, right over here. And he'd light the pipe, and he'd puff on it a couple times, and then he'd put it back in his pocket. And, and I had to learn how to listen to the lecture and, and not focus on whether or not he was going to flame up any minute because he just put that lit pipe back in his pocket. But what fascinated me about Wallace Daniel was he taught history class with novels. We never got the big book about who, which king beat which king or what the battle of this or how long was the Hundred Years' War, any of that. We read novels. And I got through that semester and I went to register for my next semester and the first thing I did was find out what class he was teaching and sign up for it. And when it came time to declare a major, I found out what he taught was Russian history, so that was my major. Because really, I majored in Wallace Daniel because, he, because of how he taught and because of how when I would go by his office in the afternoon, he would sit and listen to me. And he made me feel like my ideas mattered. And he made me feel like I could understand the world. And so I was a history major. But you, you signed up, and I wanna, I'm going to jump on that for a second, but often I'll say to students, you know, in, in many ways, life was sort of done to you in the first part of your life. Faith certainly was. You're going to church, get in the car. When you get to college, that begins to change. You know, you got to take a religion class in chapel or two, but after that, it you have to start stepping up. And, and you, so what would you say to them they need to do with regard to what they're going to learn on the line and be apprenticed in life. What do they need to be doing? Is, is try. When Kevin, the guy that taught me to flip eggs, the first day I was working in the little breakfast place, and I was watching him, and he did that really cool thing where he'd break the egg in the pan and cook, and then he'd do the wrist thing, and the egg would flip over, and I was like, okay, I'm really going to feel like a chef when I can do that, because that just looked like a cool thing. 
that and ha break an egg with one hand. You know, just go, poo, 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 eggs, you know. So I said to him at the end of the shift, I want to learn to flip eggs. And in the, in the restaurant world, eggs come in what they call a flat. And there are 30 eggs on a flat. And he put down two flats of eggs, 60 eggs, and a stack of pans about like this. And he said, the only way that you learn is to fail at it. Start there, and by the time you get to number 60, you're going to know how to flip eggs. So that's what I did. Started cracking. Nope, in the trash. Nope, in the trash. And about number 51, I, I, I felt it in my wrist. And I'd and I, stand in there, and I'd like, and then number 52, and I did it again. And finished out on a run, man, like nine in a row. I'm like, yes, I'm an egg man. <laughs> You're the walrus. Yeah, cuckoo <laughs> kachu. Yeah, that's right. I am the egg man. And a uh, joke from the 60s yeah, humor. You find an old Beatles record. You'll laugh later. Um, but, but in that, part of what I learned is that, the, that you, you try it, you fail at it, you keep coming back. It doesn't happen, you know? These are, are folks who, they wouldn't be sitting here if they hadn't succeeded already a lot, and they're around a lot of success in these days. So unpack that a little bit more in particular, and then I want you to read uh, yeah. the thing from Boston. Walter Brueggemann is a theologian who has been one of our best book friends over the years, and he one of the questions he asked particularly as we look at scripture, is what is God's organizing principle for the universe? And one of the ways I've come to answer that question is I think the answer is failure is God's organizing principle. And let me, let me read a little to tell you what I mean. Jesus spent a good deal of time talking about how about losing our lives, our pride, and our place in line. He did little to climb the ladder to any sort of social or economic standing, choosing instead to surround himself with those who were accustomed to not being number one. We share the communion meal following his command to remember his death, which Frederick Buechner described as the magnificent defeat, or in the parlance of my high school students, an epic fail. We come to the table to remember that failure, both his and ours, and to forgive and feed one another. This is how God organizes the world. Rather than read it, I just want to tell you the next story that happened to me. We used to live in Charlestown, which is a neighborhood in Boston. It's right where the Bunker Hill Monument is. And we lived in a little row house that didn't have a front yard. There was our house, and there was the sidewalk. So like the house is here, and you guys are the street. It was that close. And on the other side of the street was a park. And one morning I was sitting with a friend at the houses. There aren't air conditioned. So we had the windows open. We could hear what's happening in the park. And this little guy comes into the park. He's about eight years old. He's got his baseball bat. There's nobody in the park. And, and he starts to play an imaginary baseball game. And you can see him, right? He stands in. And I'm figuring he thinks he's at Fenway Park. It is Boston after all. And here comes the pitch, and he says, the pitch, and he goes, strike one. Okay. And he kind of dusts off the shoes, and he settles in again. Strike two. 
And now my friend Billy and I, he kind of has our attention, so we're kind of waiting now, because you can see, I, had, I knew what was going to happen. I've done this, right? You set it up, bottom of the ninth, two strikes, bases are loaded, time to step in. And he steps up, and here it comes. Strike three, he says. His game, his bat, his imagination, he struck out. This is how God organizes the world. The reason I love baseball is the guy who wins the batting title only gets on base one out of every three times it comes to the plate. Right? It isn't, when I got to Baylor my freshman year, everybody on my hall in Penland's second floor but me was the high school senior class president. And all of a sudden, we were, we were all freshmen on the second hall in Penland. The, most of the accomplishments of our life don't last. I remember being their age and, and sitting with a, a mentor and wrestling around with some stuff and finally he just stopped the conversation and he said, Bert, I wish for you a great failure. Huh. Why, why would he wish that for me? And what do you think that has to do with the gospel in particular and, and the table? One of our friends years ago, and I write about it in here, talked about when we came to the communion table that the language we used that Jesus says, as often as you come to the table, remember me. And he said, the opposite of remember is not forget. The opposite of remember is dismember because life pulls us apart. And so I say that to answer your question, because what, I, what you're saying to me is a great failure reminds me I need help getting put back together again. Yeah, it, so it's process-specific knowledge. You're not going to get to this in other ways. This, right. There are things that success. In fact, Richard Rohr, a Franciscan monk that I love to read, says after 30, success has nothing to teach you. Huh. Yeah. So... Failure is not, is not only something that we're dealing with, but somehow it is in itself in our, the C's that we make in the first semester at Baylor. It may have been the first C we ever made. Somehow is the avenue to something that mm -hmm. is really, really important for us. One, one of the guys in my class who was with me in uh, chamber had his heart set on going to medical school. And one semester at Baylor made two B's. And it meant, and he sent off all the medical school applications and nothing. So he waited a year and he did it again and nothing. And a third year and nothing. And then he decided, I know that I want to do something in medicine. What can I do? And he went into medical research and he has spent his career researching how to cure diseases and had an amazing career. Um, maybe 15 years ago now, I was preaching every week at a church and as a pastor, and got, I was stumped on a Saturday, which happens to preachers every now and then, and I had the sense of where the sermon was going and that it needed something artistic, and so I called my poet friend up, who he was in Boston and I was here in Waco, and I said, you know, here's what I'm kind of getting at with this sermon, and I'm wondering, 
do you think you could write me a poem, like, right now? <laughs> and, uh, and send it to me, because I think I want to end this sermon with your poem. And so, sure enough, a little bit later, I got you know, the, the, the poem via email, and uh, I wanted to read it now, because I, in some sense it's getting further into this notion of coming to grips with the fact that we're very small, but everyday things come our way that matter and convey to us that we matter. I want you to read that for us. This is called Daily Work. I have to stand in the right place so the light comes on so I read. Daily Work. The crush of afternoon traffic finds me in an unending stream of souls staring at the stoplight. From my seat, I can see the billboard. Come visit the new planetarium, you tiny, insignificant speck in the universe. When the signal changes, I follow the flow over river and railroad yard coming to rest in front of our row house to be welcomed by our schnauzers, the only ones who appear to notice my return. I've been hard at work in my stream of consciousness, but the ripples of my life have stopped no wars, have saved no lives, and I forgot to pick up the dry cleaning. I am a speck who has been found wanting. I walk the dogs down to the river and wonder how many times I have stood at the edge hoping to hear, you are my beloved child. Instead, I skip across life's surface to find I am not the one you were looking for. I'm standing in the river of humanity between the banks of blessing and despair with the sinking feelings that messiahs matter most. I am supposed to change the world, and I have not done my job. Yet if I stack up the stones of my life like an altar, I can find myself in the legacy of love somewhere between star and sea. I am a speck of some significance. So say the schnauzers every time I come home. This is the paradox in scripture, isn't it? I'm a speck, but I'm a speck of some significance. Right. I'm dust, but I'm also made in the spirit of God. And when we talk about failure, hear me really clearly. We fail, but you and I are not failures. We are all wonderfully and uniquely created in the image of God and worthy to be loved. Period. As we move towards wrapping things up, here's the question, and I want you to move quickly from the metaphor to them. There's recipe and there's creativity. There's, here's the form you got to follow to get the egg done right or whatever, and there's something in you trying to improve on that in the kitchen. How does that work for them in these days? When um, one of the ways that sometimes we talk about what God would do in our life is we use the word plan as if there is a map somewhere. I always figured it like the one at the mall where it has a little X and says you are here and you can kind of find the place. And on an existential level, I've never found that map. And I think that with a recipe, really cooking is about process. I was reading a book the other day and the guy's talking about when you're making a cake, 
you have the same ingredients, and it depends how you mix them. If you mix the butter and sugar together first, you get a pound cake with the exact same ingredients. If you mix the eggs and sugar together first, you get a sponge cake. It isn't necessarily about following right down to the rules. You have to take into when, when bakers bake, they have to pay attention to the temperature in the room. The recipes are different in the winter than they are in the summer because the dough rises differently. You have to pay attention to your surroundings. You have to pay attention to your ingredients. Biscuits are better in the south because the wheat that grows down here is lighter than the wheat that grows in the fields up north. And if you use northern flour to make biscuits, they just don't taste like biscuits. That's why they play hockey up there. That's what they use the biscuits they made for. <laughs> it is about knowing your process, knowing what you have to work with, and then it's improvisational theater in a way. But in the kitchen, in a restaurant, what was great about it is you're never the only one working. There's always a place to say, taste this. How do you do this? Show me. Teach me. Or, hey, look what I learned. And it's okay to fudge with the recipes some. Oh, man. Right? Well, in the book, I have my great-grandmother's strawberry shortcake recipe. It's a good recipe. But over time, I have my version of what she does because I take fresh basil up and chop it in the, into the shortbread to flavor the bread a little bit. And I don't just put the cherries on there. I toss them with some sugar and balsamic vinegar to make them a little bit more tart. And I put a little bit of cinnamon in the sugar, I mean, in the whipped cream. And so by the time and we your get... Your grandmother's to, okay with it. Yeah, <laughs> she's not around. So, you know. Um, but it is, to me, I'm making, I'm still making her recipes. But it's me making her recipes. So I, I read a spiritual teacher once that said you have to know the rules right in order to know how to break them. Something like that, isn't it? We have to acquire in everything, but particularly our faith, disciplines of faith that, that shape us, and yet at the same time, there's this, this journey that no one else has ever walked right. and ever will. And You're what, right. to me, what matters most in that in terms of what the journey's going to count for has to do that we walked it together. My, I mentioned... Ginger earlier, my wife is an amazing woman. We met 25 years ago this past weekend. And, and I think about the friendship that I've had with Bert now, nearly 30 years and some others, and I feel like whatever judgment might look like, if I have to stand before God and God goes, well, the best answer I know is I'm going to say, I was with him. That's how I spent my life. I was with Ginger, I was with Billy, I was with Kenny, I was with Christy. I can go on. Not, I was a cook, or I worked at the Apple store, or I pastored a big church, who cares? Figure out how to pay the bills, and then fall in love with each other. That's it. Except do it the other way around. Fall in love with each other, then go figure out how to pay the bills. When Milton and I were your age, we started, uh, we both played the guitar, so, and we would sing, and we would pick two stools and our guitars in the car on lots of weekends, and off we would go to some church somewhere in East Texas, and we would do youth uh, retreats, and 
banquets and all sorts of things. And uh, so we sang a lot, and we risked it in the first chapel, so I want to do it again. I told you he's a songwriter. Some of you will probably recognize maybe even the song. But he wrote a little blessing a few years ago, and as we stand to finish chapel now, uh, I want us to sing it. You have to hit some harmony this morning. Okay. All right, all right. Okay. Would you stand for the blessing? Second time around? Yes, we, have, we haven't sung together in 25 years, so here you go. Mm-hmm. Go in peace, live in grace. Trust in the arms that will hold you. Go in peace, live in grace. Trust God's love. Go and live and trust in the arms that will hold you. Go. Great day. Yeah.